Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York and joining us from uh, uh, the vicinity of our nation's capital. We have John McLaughlin, former acting director of Central Intelligence and deputy director of Central Intelligence and one of the most distinguished uh, intelligence leaders of the past several decades. Uh, thanks for joining us again, John. Oh, it's a pleasure, David. Uh, so, in, you know, the intelligence community is in the news this week uh, with uh, the decision uh, of Dan Coats to leave as the director of national intelligence and the president's uh, decision to nominate John Ratcliffe uh, as his replacement. I'd like to explore that and then a couple of other issues. Uh, but I thought I'd, I'd start from a kind of a, a background perspective. Um, the, the, the post of director of national intelligence is a post-9-11 development, uh, which came about as a desire to produce more and better coordination among the many parts of the U.S. government that um, are responsible for intelligence. Um, I personally was always a little skeptical of the idea, only in the U.S. government, when you have a uh, coordination and communication problem, do you add another layer of bureaucracy? Um, uh, and, and, and this is one that's gotten quite big. Uh, but I'm wondering, what's your view of the DNI uh, as, a, as a role in an institution? Well, candidly, David, I started off skeptical. If anyone checks the public record on this, uh, I, I did not like the idea when it was introduced. For the reasons you just mentioned. Uh, over time, though, I think the uh, office has uh, worked out well and the first few directors uh, struggled to define it, and I think the definition really came under the director who was just prior to Dan Coates, and that was Jim Clapper. Uh, Clapper, who was a veteran intelligence officer, worked at uh, defense intelligence uh, issues and the Defense Department most of his life, a uh, good former colleague of mine, uh, really figured out the way to do the job. And the way to do the job was not to seek to run any of the agencies, but to do the thing that only the director of national intelligence could do, only the person who had been designated to write above all of these agencies. And that is, among other things, to speak on behalf of all of them to reflect their collective view on key issues. And the director also has the responsibility for shaping their initial budgets, that's an important element of power, and also able to task them to uh, attack a problem, if you will, 
and to to move all of them in the same direction on a problem at the same time. Those are the basic issues here. In the early days of that office, uh, people spent too much time on what might be called data calls and bureaucracy and so forth. But I think Clapper figured this out. And uh, during the six or so years that he was director, I think uh, won people over to the idea and did the job very effectively. And Coates has sort of picked up in that vein as well. Uh, Coates has not tried to overachieve in the job. I think he's done very well. The key thing a DNI has to do, which is, as just mentioned, speak on behalf of all of these agencies to reflect their collective view and the degree to which they differ on a subject. That's a rather powerful tool for the U.S. government to have at its disposal, I think. Well, it it also requires somebody who's willing to um, speak truth to power and be an honest broker among those agencies. Uh, and if people weren't sure that was the role that Dan Coates was going to play uh, at the outset, it, it became clear fairly early on uh, that he took those things seriously. And, of course, there was the incident where uh, President Trump had a rather infamous cabinet meeting where they went around the room and uh, each of the members of the cabinet uh, uh, you know, heaped praise upon the president uh, in a kind of strange ritual. And <laughs> Coates, Coates uh, declined to do that, essentially said, you know, it's his pleasure to be there to represent the intelligence community. Uh, and that was reflected all the way through to his resignation letter, where prior resignation letters did the same thing, uh, for, as far as Trump was concerned, he praised him. And again, Coates said, I, uh, it has been my honor to represent the intelligence community. And in the course of his career uh, there, uh, periodically, he um, took positions that were uncomfortable for the president. Yep. Uh, uh, th- that's not easy, as, as you know, in a bureaucracy. But from the point of view of being an intelligence professional, it's kind of the whole job, isn't it? It's the whole job. It's absolutely the whole job. You know, the intelligence director, whether we're talking about the DNI or the CIA director, has a a tricky job here in the sense that you want to be a member of the team. That is, you want the United States to win in important situations. But you are the one person uh, who cannot allow politics to enter the equation. You're the one person who comes into the room with the single sole job of stating uh, the facts as closely as you can humanly describe them in an objective way. Uh, Some people say truth to power and so forth, but my thought about it has always been it's your job to represent approximate reality to the degree that it is humanly possible to do so, devoid of politics. And that sometimes makes you the skunk at the picnic. It sometimes makes you the person who comes into the room and has to say, this isn't working, or we have some intelligence here that we trust and believe that shows the policy you're following is not having the desired effect. That's the whole job. Uh, Sometimes the job involves simply explaining something that is confusing uh, or describing the intentions of a foreign government. Why are the North Koreans seeking nuclear weapons? Why are the Iranians remaining in compliance with the 
uh, when they were uh, with the Iranian nuclear agreement. Sometimes it's explaining things, but often it's predicting things, and often it's estimating things in situations of uncertainty. Brent Scowcroft, I think, gave us the former, he was the national security advisor, as your listeners may know, for George H.W. Bush, uh, General Brent Scowcroft. And he often gave what I thought was one of the best definitions of this job, which is, as he put it, to narrow the range of uncertainty when difficult decisions have to be made. That's very sophisticated understanding of this role. In other words, he didn't say predict the future with absolute perfection. He didn't say know everything. He said narrow the range of uncertainty when difficult decisions have to be made. And you do that without reference to politics. That's the job. Well, and from the get-go, um, there has been an underlying tension between the president, uh, this current president of the United States, yes. uh, and the intelligence community, even during the campaign. But, but certainly in the wake of the campaign, the president felt that any report of Russian interference in the elections, for example, might be delegitimizing to him, right. and he sought to suppress such reports. Uh, uh, and Coates wouldn't have that, and and he also, uh, in 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 the case of of you know national security evaluations done by the NSC, for example, he you know he took his own point of view. He he would. Uh, cleave to a, a, a different line than the political line. Um, and that ultimately seemed to be his undoing. And although President Trump, in saying his you know sort of farewells to Coates, uh, tried to say that he's a friend and he <laughs> likes him, one of the things that the president said was um, that the intelligence community had run amok. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. And, and and I'm just wondering what your reaction was when you heard that. Uh, the only time, well, I was I found it a startling thing for a president to say. You know, I, I worked under seven presidents and and knew three or four of them quite well, and briefed uh, four of the last six, I guess you would say. And I, I to me, that was the least informed, least comprehending thing that I've ever heard a president say. Intelligence agencies really don't run amok. They run amok only in fantasy movies, uh, you know, the Bourne Identity or something like that. Uh, wait, they are wait, among that's, the that's most not real? disciplined. The, the Bourne uh, Identity is not a real depiction of the intelligence community. <laughs> no. Sometimes I wish it was, but I'm afraid not. No, no. Uh, but there are very few films that are a real depiction. But the. The idea that they run amok, uh, no, they're about the most responsive and disciplined organizations in the U.S. government. And in many ways, though I know many people don't accept this or understand it, uh, but it's true that they are also among the most closely overseen and investigated. So, uh, you know, that, that to me was uh, showed a complete lack of comprehension. And... To me, you know, uh, presidents who are secure and confident welcome someone who will tell them the truth and who will um, differ with them on occasions. Uh, 
every president that I was privileged to be close enough to to get a reading was certainly that way. And they may not like what you're telling them. They may find it uh, offensive. They may find it uh, disappointing. But uh, ultimately, they appreciate that there is a point of view that isn't just uh, saluting uh, and pretending to be a yes man or a woman. So uh, I just found that statement uh, you know, beyond startling. And here's the problem with um, nominating Ratcliffe. I don't know the individual, uh, but all the external indications are that politically he's a kind of clone of Trump. Now, a president is entitled to pick someone for this job that he's personally comfortable with. Uh, most presidents have done that. But to pick someone who is so overtly political and whose positions not only mirror the president's, but mirror the president's most extreme positions. Um, one of the things I found most noteworthy in Ratcliffe's public comments is his endorsement uh, of the idea that the Obama administration was doing illegal things. Well, there's an investigation underway that the Trump administration has sponsored to, to look into that. But for someone about to take this position to make that statement, um, you know, it, in authoritarian societies, that's how intelligence behaves. They help the leader declare the opposition illegal and narrow the scope of its activities. So when we get to a confirmation hearing here, if there is one, and let me back up on that for a moment and say, I, I, I am not sure that the Republican Party, as much as it has been um, in Trump's sway, uh, I'm not sure that the Republican Party itself or key leaders in it uh, will be comfortable with this nomination. We'll see. But if they are, and if there is a confirmation hearing, and if Ratcliffe does not give absolutely ironclad assurances that he can be objective and non-political, that'll be the most important vote that the Congress takes on a confirmation. And the reason is that a vote on someone who is unable to establish their commitment to objectivity and truthfulness in this particular job put smack in front of everyone the issue of whether they're ready to surrender their independent-mindedness uh, to the president. And I, I think that is a Rubicon once crossed um, is very difficult to, uh, to reverse. Well, that is sort of the last threshold in a, authoritarian societies is when the um, an authoritarian-minded ruler gains control over the output of the intelligence community. Now, I, I'm going on for a bit here, but I want to just add another point. I don't think the intelligence community itself would stand for being manipulated. The ethic of uh, objectivity is so strong that uh, people would not put up with that. A, a an intelligence leader who tried to simply tell people this is what you're supposed to believe and what you're supposed to say uh, would not get the cooperation of people in the intelligence world, at least not the people currently there that I know. 
So there are some there are safeguards in this system, but the fact that we've gotten this far down this road is uh, is alarming. I think. Well, I think there's been a systematic effort on the part of the president to break down safeguards wherever he can. Yep. And ultimately, I'd like to get to that because you know, I mean, you you have the example of the Attorney General of the United States where similar rules apply. The Attorney General is supposed to provide independent perspectives and be guided by justice and the Constitution, preserve the rule of law. Once the Attorney General sees their job not as being the principal uh, you know, justice officer of the United States, but of rather being the president's personal attorney, uh, it changes the job and undermines a lot of protections that exist. And, and, and we've seen that in some cases where the attorney general um, will not enforce laws that, for example, require the Congress to, or, or give the Congress the power to subpoena the president, uh, 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 will not pass on information to which the Congress has the right. Uh, in fact, I, I found one of the places where the, 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 the Venn diagram of all this overlaps uh, that's particularly troubling is that the intelligence community, of course, works closely with uh, congressional overseers, the Gang of Eight, the, the, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the House Committee on Intelligence. And, and yet, we had not too long ago Adam Schiff pointing out that they had not received any briefings on the counterintelligence components of, of, of the Mueller investigation. Uh, for a year, they had, you know, and, and, and this is in the midst of repeated warnings by senior officials that the Russians were going to do just what they did the last time around. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it seems that this erosion is taking place. Um, and, of course, you can comment on that, but there was one other question I'd like to add to the end of it, uh, because unlike some jobs, the president actually can't or isn't supposed to point whomever he wants to this job, because there's a statute which says that the director of national intelligence actually has to have extensive uh, yep. relevant national security experience, and John Ratcliffe does not. All of that is true. And uh, as you say, uh, there are some echoes of the bar nomination and confirmation here. It may be that what he's looking for is an intelligence director who has the same, uh, who is as pliant uh, as uh, Attorney General Barr uh, has been. Uh, my point is that this is kind of the final threshold because uh, th this is the one position in the national security apparatus that is not in a chain of command that makes or implements policy. And, and the whole job is to stand apart from that and to be able to say uh, with independence, uh, this is what the intelligence shows. This is the facts as best we can deter determine them. Um, and if you lose that, uh, you're smack in the middle of, um, you're well on your way toward a kind of authoritarian um, situation, I think. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I, I retain enough, at this point, enough confidence in um, 
the, the leadership in Congress to come to their senses on this and to run a confirmation hearing that um, is responsible and avoids that outcome. But I think uh, with the president having perceived that the intelligence community is running amok and that uh, and now nominating someone who is so overtly politically in tune with his most extreme views, um, you know, doesn't reassure you. Uh, but I, I'm just hoping the guardrails hold here. On the point you just made, yeah, um, that's what the law says. The the law says that the person taking this position ought to have extensive background in intelligence or national security. It, it also says that if this person steps aside or resigns or is removed, that the deputy uh, DNI is to step in. And they're even talking about the possibility that that won't happen. So it's of a species with a lot of the other things that at least I regard as laws, such as responding to subpoenas um, and responding to requests uh, from Richard Neal for tax returns, uh, that they are simply brushing aside. So we, we are in what I like to call upside-down world. Uh, we're in an unprecedented, extraordinary situation. And uh, in that situation, you know, I have taken some comfort from the fact that the intelligence community has remained generally um, stable and competent and independent. When I think back to the um, hearing that I think upset the president, which was the worldwide threat testimony that takes place every year, uh, putting the CIA director and the director of national intelligence and the FBI director and the defense intelligence director, putting all of those people in front of the Congress publicly. I think back to that hearing, which the president uh, disliked because of the statements made on Iran and North Korea and so forth. Uh, the prevailing impression that most people that I know, when I would ask them, well, what was your reaction to that hearing? Uh, the prevailing impression was that was a group of competent, well-informed, thoughtful people. And it stood out in the current environment. And so I've taken some comfort from that. That's that's one of the things that um, we dare not tamper with when all of these other uh, barriers are now uh, uh, getting fragile. Well, one of the... The intelligence community, the other way to put this to me is the intelligence community is the fact witness in the U.S. government. That's not always right, of course. I mean, I can recount the errors that have been made. Um, it's not perfection because it's a human organization. But it, it's the one place that you ought to be able to go and say, what's really true here? And get a serious opinion. And here we are at a moment when everything is turned upside down, when people are asking themselves, what is it I should believe? This is the, the one place you can dial up and say, so what's really going on? And expect a serious answer. If that is ever tampered with, uh, how do we make our way in the world at all? Well, you know, it's a, it's true, and you know, there's a there's a component of this which doesn't get discussed, which just crosses my mind as we're talking about, uh, and that is that the intelligence community is actually um, only half the equation. It's engaged in exchanges with the policy community, 
Exactly. And, it doesn't make policy. And but, and and so, to a large extent, um, that exchange is shaped by the expectations and the character of the consumers of intelligence. And one, you know, I mean, we, we, we talk about the requirement that the director of national intelligence has experience. We have seen in the past, and, and not just in the Trump administration, but, but in the Trump administration, that if you have a president who is not accustomed to the consumption of intelligence, they will misunderstand it. They will misuse it. They may come in with misapprehensions. And I, I think we may have talked about this before, but, but you know, I, I will never forget a conversation uh, that I had around the time of the debate about the intelligence coming out of Iraq on weapons of mass destruction uh, when there were some revelations that that intelligence was flawed. And I had a conversation with the then 90-something-year-old uh, General Andy Goodpaster, who had been uh, in a position kind of like National Security Advisor, in addition to having been Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, but but w- during World War II was an aide to Eisenhower, and 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 he said this thing that has lived with me ever since, which he said Eisenhower would never have had any patience for this kind of debate because he always took intelligence with a grain of salt. And he he said, I was with Eisenhower in December of 1944 when he received intelligence about German action uh, outside the region where the Battle of the Bulge was ultimately fought that said, ignore it. It's nothing serious. And then two weeks later, the Battle of the Bulge was fought. Mm -hmm. He said, we lived through that. He was a sophisticated consumer of intelligence. And so that added value to the exchange. If you have an unsophisticated consumer or somebody who wants to to use it for political purposes, it, of course, devalues the exchange. Yeah, it's a complicated relationship. And I can tell you from my experience, the kind of relationship you want with a president or any consumer of intelligence is is one where they feel completely um, free to challenge uh, your point of view um, and go back and forth with you in an intelligent way. You know, Bob Gates once said the contentiousness of the issues we deal with in intelligence is um, is not fully understood. Most issues that intelligence has to rule on are, uh, there's no formula answer, and you seldom have all of the information. So when you have a very sophisticated consumer with a lot of experience, and, and hard to imagine one more so than Dwight Eisenhower, um, and they come back and say, well, my experience is such that uh, I, don't, I don't completely buy that. That's fair. That's fair. And then you go back to the drawing board and take another look. So it's a complicated relationship and uh, in which the intelligence officer has to have some humility and some um, situational awareness and emotional intelligence, all of that, uh, in order to get anywhere near the truth of issues that are complicated, upon which information is arriving incrementally, upon which you will never have a total 100% picture. So one of the great um, intelligence leaders of the 1950s, Sherman Kent, uh, once said, we, we call them estimates for a reason. Uh, estimates 
estimating is what you do when you don't know. So uh, it's a complicated relationship, and it requires sophistication and experience on both sides for it to work well. That's one reason I quoted uh, Brent Scowcroft. And among presidents, uh, you know, none was more that I worked with. None was more sophisticated and uh, knowledgeable about this than George H.W. Bush, who was, of course, previously had been a UN ambassador and a uh, ambassador to China and a, a CIA director. So he, he understood how to use the material and how to draw the best out of intelligence officers. So it's it's not good when it just doesn't work well when we have a situation like today where you know you have a president who's almost emotionally offended by anything that disagrees with his uh, predisposition. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, I think a confident, secure president uh, likes to hear different points of view and hopes that the intelligence community will bring him that uh, understanding that it doesn't mean he has to simply salute and do that. He, he can take that into account. You know, a president makes decisions about major issues based on, someone once said, at least 12 different factors. <laughs> and intelligence is one of them. It has to be consumed intelligently. I'm reading right now um, a book about the uh, last uh, 18 months or so of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency called His Final Battle. And uh, it's a reminder yet again of uh, how difficult these decisions are and how intelligence factors into it and how you need someone with experience and sophistication to make, make it all work. Yes. And so, so I was just thinking that's particularly true when, for example, your, one of your chief adversaries is the former Russian intelligence officer. <laughs> yeah, we're exactly right. Yeah. Um, but 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 you know, in in the in a, in a kind of related vein to the, the the this conversation, you know, when Coates was around, he was considered one of the grown-ups in the room, to use the term that we've used for a couple of years. Uh, and I saw a number of stories saying, you know, the last of the grown-ups has left the room. And as I saw those, uh, and you know, I found that worrisome. I also thought it was a little bit unfair. Because Gina Haspel, as the director of central intelligence, while she has sort of kept her head down and has not been in the public eye a lot, um, uh, has maintained her reputation and that of yes. the agency, uh, and has actually been one of the grown-ups in the room. And, I, and, and, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the fact that if, if you were to have somebody like Ratcliffe as the DNI, there would be even greater pressure on people like her to maintain the integrity of the process. That's right. And uh, I do have confidence in uh, Gina Haspel to do that. Uh, she, she has taken fully on board personally the, the ethic of objectivity and balance in uh, estimating foreign situations. Um, she's got a fine line to walk in that she's in an administration where um, that isn't always appreciated, where not everyone is that way. And, uh, and she also has an agency that, you know, she needs to guide and, in a sense, protect 
So she's got a lot of balls in the air, but uh, I do have complete confidence in her. I've known her for years. Uh, I know that she's a very dedicated professional, that uh, this is what she's worked for. For She's worked to this uh, ethical drummer for um, all of her 30-some years in the business. So I think uh, if someone like Ratcliffe were to become the DNI, uh, her uh, high wire would get strung even tighter. But uh, I also know that she's not the sort of person who will bend to pressure. I'm confident of that. So let me ask you two last questions that are both sort of operational questions about this particular moment. One you touched upon a little bit earlier when you talked about Ratcliffe's comment about Obama um, spying on the Trump team. Um, But it gets us into what could potentially be the reason for appointing Ratcliffe uh, and, and, and 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 a difficult area, which is the desire of the president and potentially also the attorney general and potentially others, including the Senate Majority Leader, to paint a picture of abuses by the FBI and the intelligence community uh, in conducting this investigation um, of, of, you know, Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, It strikes me, of course, that there's another potential casualty of playing fast and loose with the facts around this or opening it to investigation um, or blowing the whistle on certain parts of the investigation. And that is our relationship with uh, our allies, who in some cases provided some consultative role in all of this. Uh, And so it may seem like politics as usual on the surface, but pursuing that kind of investigation also seems to me to have some significant national security risks associated with it. And I'm just wondering what your view is. Well, I know that's to be the case. I mean, I know that from firsthand testimony in the sense that I stay in touch with a number of our foreign uh, allies uh, in in my former profession. And uh, they look upon this as bizarre and worrisome. And I think the key point to make here is this. And the, the fact that we're even talking about this as and even using the phrase, I know you didn't necessarily mean it, but even using the phrase politics as usual shows the degree to which, um, to some degree, Trump has normalized this sort of thing. Because at core, what we're talking about here is a desire to declare the actions of your predecessor, your opposition party, if you will, illegal. That, that, is, a, um, that is a wall you don't want to breach in a democracy uh, p- perhaps in uh, the most extreme and desire and 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 and, uh, and and extreme situations it can be imagined but it's it's it, it, it seems to me it, it's it's a line you just don't want to cross in a democracy because where does it stop where does it stop when you begin to declare your opposition illegal um, it probably goes on from there to declare elections rigged and so forth and so on. 
So that's my concern about all of this. Um, people ask, why are former intelligence officers speaking out at all? Aren't we supposed to be neutral and keep our mouths shut and stay out of politics? And, and otherwise, if we don't, people will never trust intelligence to be neutral and non-political. Well, you know, what a lot of us are seeing happen here mirrors what we've seen happen in societies that during our careers we've either lived in or worked on, where we've seen democracy uh, begin to weaken, fray, and ultimately disappear. And I don't think we're at that point, but we're starting to see a lot of the signs. What are the signs? Well, the signs are universal. You start declaring um, the media the enemy of the people. Uh, you get hold of the judicial processes, and you attack the justice and law enforcement uh, institutions. And the final threshold is usually uh, taking over the intelligence apparatus so that you have gained control of what I called earlier the fact witness in defining events, whether domestically in the case of the FBI or in foreign situations in the case of agencies like the CIA and the National Security Agency. So I think we're at a kind of an inflection point here with this nomination. I mean, it seems like just another nomination, but I think it's freighted with all sorts of larger issues that we need to think very carefully about. So the last question um, it has to do with the fact that the FBI director and the intelligence community, uh, uh, the the Senate uh, uh, Intelligence Committee, have all indicated that the kind of interference that we saw in 2016 is ongoing. And we have a situation now where a foreign adversary is uh, inserting itself into uh, the fundamental you know, operations of our democracy. Uh, and our Senate is saying, we don't want to hear about it. We don't want to fund efforts to stop it. And our, uh, our uh, president is saying, we don't want to hear about it. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's actually going on, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Uh, but there are people in the United States government in these intelligence agencies that you just referred to whose job it is every day to identify these threats uh, and to raise alarms. And it seems that there's an internal tension because these people will see that there are aspects of our vital institutions that are being put at risk. Um, but they will also be uh, perhaps see that information being repressed. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the consequences you know, of those kind of internal tensions ultimately might be? Well, the fact that we even have those tensions is uh, what Putin was hoping for here. Maybe it's more than he was hoping for. I, I actually think the Russians uh, probably are a little surprised that they've gotten as much out of this rather simple operation. It was complicated and sophisticated at some level, but it wasn't... Uh, nearly as sophisticated as many people think. It's just that we uh, 
we were kind of an open target. Um, and more could be said about that. But uh, I think what they've gotten out of it is the kind of division that we have over a simple issue like whether we ought to be combating this with uh, our full resources. The fact that that's uh, an issue is itself a victory for the Russians. The fact that we are so divided along partisan lines right now is a victory for uh, Russia, because what they're trying to do here is bring our democracy down to their level so that they are not as vulnerable as uh, they are now to charges of, of ill governance. Um, now, I'll say this. I, I've had occasion recently to meet with some professional-level people from the Department of Homeland Security. And my point here would be that at the professional level across the U.S. government, meaning, you know, about three or four levels down in the Department of Homeland Security, at the CIA, at NSA, um, FBI, uh, professionals are working here uh, aware of the problem of Russia and others trying to interfere in our democracy and doing everything they can to, to detect that, alert people, and thwart it. The problem here is that we don't have an orchestrated national-level uh, effort uh, led by someone in the White House to mobilize all of those resources in a way that is most effective. So it, it, the way I see it at this point is it's... Um, thousands of professionals across the U.S. government scrambling to put their fingers in the dike as opposed to uh, a national effort to orchestrate all of that in a, you know, a kind of Manhattan Project-like way to ensure the integrity of our vote um, by eliminating the cybersecurity position in the White House. That coordination is hard to affect by virtue of the president not openly leading the charge here, um, that also takes a lot of momentum out of efforts at the professional level. Uh, one of the things that I came away from my time in the federal government realizing is that things in the executive branch do not fully mobilize until the president throws his or her weight behind that both in terms of what they say and and, uh, and what they do, walking the talk and showing everyone that they are committed. And we haven't had that. So I don't want to leave viewers with or listeners with the idea that no one is doing anything. There are a lot of professionals who understand the problem and are trying to fix it and work with state and local governments. It's complicated because we have, what, over 3,000 counties in this country that administer their elections with some degree of independence. Um, there are a lot of holes in the dike to plug. And as you probably know, there are a number of states, um, like New Jersey, for example, that do not yet have a fully functioning paper ballot system or paper ballot backup. So uh, there are a lot of vulnerabilities in, in the system. But I do want to leave people with the idea that professionals in the U.S. government are working on that. And also, with regard to the intelligence community, I can also say that people in that world get up every morning, look straight ahead, and do their jobs. Uh, they are not intimidated by what's going on. They are not necessarily swayed by it. You know, they may um, talk around the coffee pot about 
um, disappointment and uh, so forth. But there's a very strong mission orientation there that uh, takes seriously the idea that this part of our government is our first line of defense. So they'll continue doing their jobs and doing them well. Well, that's as good a place to end as as uh, as we can. It's an encouraging point coming from somebody with your perspective and experience. Um, I, I, I trust it is one that our listeners will take to heart. Uh, really, really grateful for you joining us again for this. Hope you can do it again in the future. It's extremely useful. I know our listeners uh, follow these kind of conversations extremely closely. Uh, and we thank you uh, very much for that. And for the listeners, I would say, please, uh, you know, join us at thedsrnetwork.com uh, or go to uh, our various other podcasts as we will continue to cover other aspects of this uh, and come back again uh, next week and in ensuing weeks for National Security Magazine, where we do one-on-one conversations just like this one. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.